1: All right, Welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Saturday, everybody. I hope all of you guys had a great week. Round 2 coverage of the NBA playoffs here at Hoops Tonight is brought to you by Chase Freedom Unlimited. How do you cash back? All right, We have three shows today. This morning, I'm going to be breaking down both of the games from last night. The Suns taking Game 3 from the Nuggets and the Celtics stealing Game 3 on the road in Philly. This afternoon, we'll have a video after Game Three of Heat Knicks, as well as later in the evening after Lakers Warriors Game Three. All right, you guys know the drill. Before we get started, subscribe to the Volume's YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And if for whatever reason you guys miss one of these shows, can't get back over to YouTube to finish, don't forget you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under Hoops tonight. All right, let's talk some basketball. So. In Suns Nuggets, not a whole lot of uh, a lot in the way of adjustments that I noticed. I know that uh, they made Jokic play in much more of a crowd. Definitely sent more extra defenders at him, gapped him a little bit more than they did in Game Two. Uh, Jokic was obviously amazing as he usually is. I think he had 17 assists in the game, but they did force him into six turnovers. Gotten out, got out into transition a lot more. Um, the Suns had 28 points in transition in this game. I thought that was a big part of how they got loose offensively. Devin Booker himself had 12 points in transition. Um, the second big adjustment I noticed is they went with a lot more Jacques Landale over DeAndre Ayton. I I talked a lot about after game one, I believe, if I remember correctly, that the short roll was going to be one of the most important areas of this series. And the main reason why is because the Nuggets are bringing Nikola Jokic out really high in these screen and roll coverages with Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. We've been talking about a similar thing when it comes to the Lakers-Warriors series and Anthony Davis coming out really high and the Warriors picking them to pieces in the short roll with Draymond Green. And if you guys remember in that show, I talked to you guys about how... um, it's uniquely a Golden State problem that that coverage is such a bad idea. Because I said, if you guys remember, it's okay to bring the big up above the level of the screen against most players because usually the short roll guy's not as good or they don't have the bang-bang pass sequences down and the spacing down to make teams pay out of the short roll. And so you can blitz or hedge or come up high out of your drop – and usually have success rotating on the back end out of that. Whereas against Golden State, it's like a huge pain because it's just Draymond Green down the lane, and if you commit to him, he's going to kick it to the corner, and if you don't, he's going to go to the rim hard and make a layup or dunk it, and it's just Golden State will rip you to shreds like that. But you're seeing in this series the uh, the importance of having competency out of that short role. DeAndre Ayton had a nightmare game in the short role in this game. There are two plays in particular that really hurt where Yoke just coming out high, they hit Ayton on the roll. There was one where like he had a clear lane to go up with two hands and dunk the basketball and went up with a soft finger roll layup over Michael Porter Jr. that he left short. There was another one where – so we call this tagging the roller, right? So if I'm guarding the guy in the weak side corner – and uh, the roll man comes down the lane and our screen defender came up high above the level of the screen or up above the free throw line to contain, the roll man is coming directly to the rim unimpeded, right? But the job of the weak side corner, that defender, his job is to tag the roller, which means to get into the lane and at least try to do something to make it difficult for that big man to finish at the basket. But usually it's an undersized defender. There was another play... Um, I believe in the second half of this game, where Jamal Murray tagged the roller on DeAndre Ayton rolling to the rim. And like that's a matchup in the NBA playoffs that you have to win. DeAndre Ayton catching on the roll under the rim against Jamal Murray has to be a bucket. And it wasn't. He missed that layup too. and And it just becomes a problem because what you're doing is you're allowing the Denver Nuggets to throw multiple bodies at your superstars without experiencing any sort of drop off on the defensive back line. And and that's a problem. Um Jock Landale, much better finishing out of the short roll in this one. Just going with power dribbles and um and more force towards the basket to finish. And I thought that was a big part of why he ended up playing as many minutes as they did. Uh, 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 Jock Landale ended up playing about half of this game. So again, keep that keep an eye on that in the long run. I mean, the way I the way I see it DeAndre Ayton's going to have to be dominant in the short role for the Suns to have any chance to win the series. They got away with one in this game where he didn't play particularly well, but game four is going to be a really tight one, and they're going to need DeAndre Ayton to play better. Um, Kevin Durant, and I'm, I'm going to get to Devin Booker because uh, obviously he's the hero of the night, but I want to take my time there, so I wanted to get through some of the uh, other kind of smaller things first. KD, I, was, I thought that was a very, very impressive Kevin Durant performance, and mainly because nothing was working for him. And I always think that that's when we learn the most about our competitors. I've talked to, I've talked a lot about this in the past, but I've one of the things that I love about real stakes and um, uh, like parity in the NBA is it brings out the best in our stars because they have to be amazing in order for their team to win. Like. I, I'm a huge Kevin Durant fan, but one of the things I didn't enjoy about him being on the Warriors is they were just so damn good that he never really had to dig that deep for them to win. He had big games, like that game, that game-sealing shot that he hit over LeBron James in the NBA finals in 2017. Like super impressive shot. Not trying to undersell it at all. That was their 15th consecutive playoff victory. Like there, there were no real stakes there. They were the most unstoppable team in NBA history if Kevin Durant could have missed that shot and it had no bearing on whether or not they were going to get the trophy, right? What I like about seeing more parody and more even stuff across the board is like Steph's going to have to be incredible to beat the Lakers this year. He's going to have to dig deep. Like LeBron James and Anthony Davis are going to have to be incredible to beat the Warriors this year. They're going to have to dig deep. Kevin Durant is going to have to dig so deep to beat this Nuggets team, and he did last night. And what was so impressive about it is even in that context – his go-to move for his entire career, the pull-up jump shot, failed him. This is a guy who I talked about this year, 55% on pull-up jump shots. That is unheard of. That's the best pull-up jump shooting season I can ever remember witnessing as a basketball fan. And he went 5-for-17 on pull-up jump shots in Game 3. 5-for-17. I think he started, what, 1-for-9 from the field. So imagine in a must-win game, down 2-0, at home, And the thing you've worked your entire life for fails you on that stage. And what did KD do? He said, hell no, I'm not losing this game. Even though this is not working. I have all of these other things that I can bring to the table as a basketball player. And he made those things happen. The big thing I noticed was playing with downhill force and actually trying to get to the rim. Again, when you really dive in on, on Kevin Durant as a basketball player, there are no weaknesses anywhere except for sometimes he could be a little reticent to attack the basket. He's incredible pull-up jump shooting at every single level. He can score in pick and roll. He can score in isolation. He can score in the post. He's got every single conceivable shot type, fadeaways over both shoulders, one leg fadeaway, pull-up going right, pull-up going left, step backs, floaters, You know, push shots in the lane. He's got everything. Right? He's an excellent passer, a highly underrated part of his game here in the, la- the last half of his career. He had eight assists with zero turnovers last night. Like that, that, that Kevin Durant has all of these things tied up perfectly in his skill set. He's a perfect basketball player, except for sometimes he can be a little reticent to go to the rim. Not in this game. 11 points at the rim, another two on a floater. He attempted 14 free throws. And again, when you play with force, you g- will get the whistle. It's kind of counterintuitive because you'd think, like, the guy who's being super physically aggressive is going to get called for fouls. But I've talked about this on the show all the time. If you play with real physical force, the refs will usually err on the side of giving you the whistle. They reward force. And, like, Katie turned what could have been a disaster night into 39-9-8 and because all of those other areas of his game – Showed to the surface when his core talent failed him. He was amazing defensively in this game on the back line. He took care of the basketball and made plays for his teammates. He generated offense by playing with downhill force, and they got the win. And so, to me, that's like one of KD's more impressive playoff performances. Because again, five for seventeen on pull up jumpers—that's not like a—that's a, not like something he's in control of. I mean, he's taking the same shots he's worked on his entire career. He was getting good separation on a lot of them. They're just not going in, which, as I've said so many times on the show, is something that can absolutely happen to a pull-up jump shooter, but everything else came to the surface, and they got the win. But let's move to the real hero of the game, Devin Booker. That that was one of the greatest scoring performances I've ever seen. 47 points, just two free throws. The exact opposite of the pull-up jump shooting spectrum. 13 for 17 on pull-up jumpers, 10 points at the rim, 20 for 25 from the field. Again, there's this funny quote, that a tweet that was going around um, last night where KD from a regular season game, and I think if I remember correctly, if I have my timing right, it was from before KD went to play with the Suns. I think he might have still been with the Nets at the time, but he said something like Devin Booker went 20 for 25 and he goes like, that's effing ridiculous. You know, basically complimenting Devin Booker. That was in a regular season game. Doing it against this level of defensive attention with Jokic coming so high out of the screens, being guarded by good perimeter defenders for the most part, like, It's just unbelievable. And when I, I, you know, I I watched the game live last night, then I went back and watched every single one of his scoring possessions again today. Rewatched the beginning of the game to look at defensive coverages and stuff. And the big things that stood out to me were one, just the ridiculous level of shot making. I mean, he hit these like fadeaways from 10 to 12 feet that were smothered, that he made. Even some of his transition baskets were completely smothered. But. He did supplement it with a lot of what I would consider to be non-stagnant isolation, which is something that I think is not talked about enough. And we're going to talk about it a little bit more when we get to James Harden here in a few minutes. But when you are stagnant isolating, it's a lot harder to get separation. Your defender is keyed in on you. The back line is set up, ready to help. It's just a lot harder. But what Devin Booker does a lot is he finds opportunities to attack with an advantage. I'll give you an example. So he... He had a pull-up three on KCP on the left wing in the first half. And, like, on the play, he kind of flashes over to the to the wing and he catches the ball. And instead of, like, turning and facing and slowing down to face KCP, which, we, which he did on some other possessions, but he supplemented it with stuff like this, he just does a hard jab step to his left, takes a dribble to his right, and elevates up and shoots. But the reason why it generates separation on KCP is he did that on the catch. So KCP's in a closeout. Again, like something silly like a closeout improves your chances of gaining separation from the defender by like 50%, right? You're going to get, it's just a lot harder defensively to do that immediately when you're not even really keyed in and set yet versus, versus when, uh, when everything is kind of a static situation, right? So like, uh, or like you'll see him hunt transition opportunities, like I was talking about, like Don't always attack against that set uh, half-court environment. If you see an opportunity to get out and transition and cook, get out and transition and cook. The pull-up threes in transition, just like walking into those shots, right? The um, the shot-making and and pick-and-roll, it was all there. Uh, But I thought it was a very good balance of post-work, attacking the basket. Like, there was post-up against KCP on the left block, or on the right block in the first half where he didn't fade over either shoulder. He just, bam, bam, two hard power dribbles, like caved in KCP's chest, reverse pivot, drop step back towards the baseline, and easy bank shot off the glass. Like, again, you want to supplement your top, your tough shot making with easier shots. That was a big part of what allowed him to be so efficient in a huge physical playoff environment in a must-win game. Um, j- j- literally one of the best scoring performances I've ever seen. And, you know, I've been, I've been talking about this all year this year, but I consider Devin Booker to be every bit as good as that long list of players that we talk about at the top of the league. You know, we have Steph, LeBron, KD, Giannis, Jokic, B, Tatum, Kawhi, and I'm probably forgetting a guy or two, but, like, Devin Booker's straight up on that list. Like, he's just on that list. He's... an unbelievable playmaker compared to where he was early in his career. One of the most efficient scorers in the league, can do it from all levels, translates to the playoffs, has turned himself into an above-average defensive player who competes. He's got got all the stuff that we typically associate with a superstar player, and he's been one of the best players in the league during this playoff run uh, from any team that's participated. So shout out to Devin Booker. Now, will they do it three more times? Who knows? But they're certainly capable. It's like I've been talking about since the beginning of the series. The Suns are just going to have to get heroic scoring performances from KD and Devin Booker to have a chance. On the Denver front, uh, nothing really to overreact to. I thought effort was a huge part of their issues in this game, especially in transition. They were just really sloppy getting back and getting matched up. Um, I think their coverages are still working. Again, as I go back and look at the footage, with exception of those transition opportunities, I thought they forced Evan Booker into a lot of tough shots and forced KD into a lot of tough shots. They're just two amazing players who took advantage of the easier opportunities in the margins when the effort wasn't quite there, and I tend to think that if Denver plays with that same process with a little bit better effort, they're going to have a good chance to win game four. I mean, heck, they took a three-point lead late in the third quarter of this one. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad the Suns are making that a series because that I, I think that one's going to be interesting down the stretch all right Sixers Celtics um you know it's funny when when I watched game one and uh everyone was focusing on the Harden thing and Harden was incredible I'm not trying to undersell it and uh when I went back and watched the film everyone was everyone was talking about Boston and some offensive process stuff and oh why did they post up Marcus Smart at the end and I went back and looked at the footage, and and I didn't really think Boston's offensive process was that bad down the stretch of that game. I thought it entirely came down to defense. They played pickup basketball defense, soft switching, playing off of James Harding, letting him feel comfortable as he got to his spots, not helping enough off of the non-shooters. They let him get too comfortable, and he made a ton of shots and beat them right in game one. Uh, But they just had a much better defensive effort starting in Game 2, and it continued into Game 3. I thought they did a great job guarding Harden and Embiid. I want to dive a little bit into the... Uh, schematics of the way they did it. So, specifically guarding Harden, Jalen Brown in ball pressure. He started this in game two, but it continued in game three. You see, it, it's like Joel Embiid wins the tip, toss it back to James Harden. There's Jalen Brown right at half court, just like stunting and getting into James Harden just to make him not feel comfortable. Again, like I talk about this all the time, but when you set a tone early to make a star feel uncomfortable, it's far more likely that they'll have a poor shooting night versus when you allow them to feel comfortable at the beginning of the game. They might make a couple shots. Now they're feeling great. And even if you do turn up the defensive intensity at that point, it might not matter, right? Like even that shot that James Harden hit over uh, Al Horford at the end of game one, like that was probably their best defensive possession of that sequence. I mean, Al Horford smothered that shot, took away the drive. It was great defense. But at that point, James Harden is so comfortable and in so much of a groove that it's just not going to affect him anymore at that point. Uh, But Jalen Brown applying ball pressure, forcing him to his right hand. That's important because... James Harden just is not as effective getting downhill towards the rim as he goes that way. Um, and then back pressure. So in his ball screen situations, like I'll give you an example. There's a play where um, he runs pick and roll, uh, gets downhill, actually gets to his left hand, and Al Horford's at the rim. And James Harden just does that classic thing that he tries to do where he just drops his shoulder into the big man's chest and then tries to take like a hard step to try to dislodge him and then kind of lean back and take like a little floater off the glass. But Jalen Brown, when he gets caught on the screen, he's behind James Harden, Harden's downhill, but he doesn't give up on the play. He goes to his next responsibility, which is back pressure, right? And so he comes sprinting in from behind and just flies in and blocks it with one arm. And we talked about this with Jared Vanderbilt in the Warriors-Lakers series, but longer defenders in back pressure actually can be really valuable in a a sense that like when you're putting a guard on a guard in pick and roll, once they get caught on the screen, they're just not going to bother anybody. But if it's a wing on a guard in pick and roll, they can actually use their length to bother uh, people from behind. I thought Jalen Brown did a good job that – Uh, with that. They also did a really nice job of gapping into driving lanes and playing off of the weak side uh, side corner in the lane. There was a big play where James Harden got all the way to the rim on the right side of the floor, went for a right-handed layup, and James Harden wasn't making good reads in this game, but Robert Williams ended up on DeAnthony Melton on this play. DeAnthony Melton was on the left wing, wide open. Robert Williams just ignores him and comes over and blocks James Harden at the rim. So they were just sending tons of bodies at Harden and Embiid throughout the game, and I didn't think either of them did really a good enough job of spraying the ball out to shooters to actually soften up the defense over the course of the game, but excellent defensive game plan, uh, from Boston on Harden and on the Embiid front, the big thing that I noticed was really trying to stop him from those catches at the elbow. So, um, Joel Embiid, like when he's posting on the block for whatever reason, and a lot of big struggle with this, Anthony Davis struggles with this a lot too, but like when, when you post him on the block, he really struggles to make the kill pass, like the, the pass that beats the tu- double team. Not the pass that escapes the double team, but the pass that beats the double team. It's usually a cross-court pass. It's usually to a three-point shooter, and you hit a couple of those, and then it kind of softens things up in the paint, right? Well, Joel Embiid struggles with those specific passes. So what, one of the things they've been doing is, instead of posting him, trying to get him the ball in a face-up situation at the elbow, because now – doesn't have to worry about anything going on behind him. He's facing the entire floor. If they double from this side, it's an easy kick to the corner. If they double from this side, he can kind of rip through and then pass to the uh, other corner. It's it's just a much easier set of reads for him to make. So one of the things that Boston was doing is just trying to stop him from ever actually getting catches there. So what they were doing is doing a three quarter front. So usually uh, Philly will set up in essentially like a uh, like a like a pistol set, right? So if there's one big at the elbow. Guard in each corner, guards on the wings. And the guard on the wing will try to make a post-entry, essentially, like a high post-entry to Joel Embiid at the elbow. But what Boston was doing was a three-quarter front. So the guy who's defending uh, uh, um, Embiid has their left foot behind Embiid, so he can't just cut back door. He'd run into him. But then he's reaching around the front, right? So it's forcing them to throw an extended pass a little bit further off the spot, which serves two purposes. One, it forces it so that if he does get a catch, he's catching it further away. So instead of catching it at 17, 18 feet, he's going to catch it at 20, 22 feet, maybe even out at the three-point line. Also, then, from the other wing, they're basically completely ignoring that guy and sending that guard to right behind Embiid and trying to bait them into throwing that high post entry so the guard can just come in and knock the pass away. And the Sixers just in general throughout the game did not do a good enough job, I thought, of reversing the ball because when a guy's in three-quarter front, he's already submitting himself to Embiid to flip position on him and get a seal this way, right? So all you have to do is throw that skip pass over the top to the other guard and Embiid can just reverse. Now he has excellent position in the middle of the floor with the defender pinned on his backside. And so that's a counter that I'd like to see from Philly going into game four. But really nice job from Boston of just preventing James Harden and Joel Embiid from doing what they like to do. And again, that's playoff basketball. is forcing teams to do things that they're uncomfortable with and hoping to force stars into bad games. You know what I mean? Um, I thought Robert Williams was excellent on the back line. He had three blocks. Uh, Offensively, I thought Boston, you know, I've I've always been really impressed by Boston's highs offensively because they're kind of the quintessential modern version of drive and kick basketball. And they find a bunch of different ways to generate dribble penetration, which is cool. So they'll do it in transition. They'll do it off the dribble. They'll do it in pick and roll for sure. But one of the biggest ways that they do it is by slipping screens. So um, a lot of teams like to switch. Uh, guard guard screens right so like if Jason Tatum and Marcus Smart set a screen rather than trying to navigate that with a traditional screen and roll coverage they'll just have the two guards switch right so now you have a wing on whoever the guard is for Boston and a guard on the wing for Boston but you're not super worried about that compared to a traditional post mismatch right so in those switching situations often the defenders will get confused or have a little delay before they guard who they're going to guard, and so slipping is open. And so one of the things they've done, especially with Tatum, because Tatum is so good at finishing at the rim and making that kickout pass, but they'll have Tatum come set a guard-to-guard screen and then just slip to the rim. And like Marcus Smart or Derek White or, or, or whatever will just kind of throw that little float pass over the top and then Tatum is now barreling downhill because the two switching defenders are still up high. Tatum is now downhill and it's the same concept that we've been talking about with all of these short rolls with DeAndre Ayton and Jacques Landale or with uh, Draymond Green with the Warriors. Now it's Jason Tatum barreling down the rim and the low man having to make a decision. Do I stop Tatum at the rim or do I stay with my shooter in the corner? And Boston has extremely good spacing. That's one of their best Abilities offensively. Everything is constantly in a typical four out or five out spacing system. So there's always shooters in the corners. There's always shooters on the wing. If they're in five out, they'll be spread out a little bit further. If they're in a four out situation, there'll be a guy in the dunker spot. But they have very, very Um, consistent spacing, and so these reads are super easy. So Tatum will set the screen. He'll slip to the rim. They'll throw that little pass over the top. He'll then throw a touch pass to Al Horford in the corner who will throw that extra pass to Derek White because Derek White's defender rotates down to Al Horford, and now Derek White's shooting a wide-open three. And again, like, driving kick basketball is more about what happens after the initial compromising uh, uh, offensive play, not the beginning. Like, I would argue that dribbling the ball down the floor and just trying to beat somebody off the dribble is sometimes the hardest way to do it, especially against a set elite NBA playoff defense. So, finding other ways to generate that rotation situation, like slipping screens, going into the post, you know, uh, like, literally anything, pushing in transition— Anything that gets a defender to leave his man to offer help, which gets you into that driving kick situation, and what makes Boston so deadly in driving kick is everybody's an offensive threat. I've talked about this before, but their aggregate offensive skill is probably the best in the league, because you got 50 points from the two J's in this game, which is basically becoming a, a guarantee these days, and then you get three the three guard cores, so you have Marcus Smart. Derek White and Malcolm Brogdon, which is, like, one of the most underrated guard cores in the league, like, Malcolm Brogdon completely dominates game two, right, off the bench, and then in this game you get 28 from Derek White and Marcus Smart combined, right, so, like, you just have so much offensive skill on the floor that when they start doing the drive and kick thing... Everybody who has the basketball is a great passer, a great shooter, and a guy that can attack the rim if needed, right? I mean, we even saw Al Horford drive and dunk on Giannis, you know, in the in the conference semifinals last year. Like, he's another guy that can legit play drive and kick – from the center position. That's a huge asset. And then at the end of the game, it was Jason Tatum's shot making. He was really hunting Tobias Harris. Um, They got it within seven, and he hits a post-up fadeaway over Tobias Harris. And then they get it back to six, and then he's got DeAnthony Melton on him. He sets a ball screen to get Tobias Harris switched on him, and then he just does like a hard step-back three on the left wing and knocks it down, basically ices the game. Really impressive late-game shot making from Jason Tatum. Um, On the Sixers' front, like the James Harden thing is just weird, man. Uh, He was disengaged from the jump. Well, Really, the whole Sixers team was disengaged from the jump. They gave up two transition threes to Boston in the first handful of possessions where they just didn't get matched up. Like Marcus Smart just walks up and takes a wide-open three. Jason Tatum just walks up and takes a wide-open three because guys just aren't talking and getting matched up. Uh, But James Harden in particular, one of the biggest things that is frustrating for me with him is He's always just a little too loose and relaxed instead of like really playing with physical force. It's the NBA playoffs, man. You're playing against one of the best defensive teams in the league and certainly one of the most talented defensive rosters in the league. like. There is no loosey-goosey basketball that's going to work against that team. You've got to be tight with everything. You can't just, like, dribble the ball uh, soft to a spot and then throw, like, a looping pass. No, you've got to get there with force. You've got to play with physicality. You've got to apply pressure on the rim and really draw defenders in before you throw passes or you're going to have turnovers. Turn the ball over a lot, couldn't make any shots, was super indecisive. There was a play where he got downhill And had an easy floater in the lane, just didn't take it. You know, he was – I talked earlier about the Robert Williams block where he just missed a wide-open shooter on the weak side because he's just not making the right reads. It just was kind of a bizarre James Harden performance. And, you know, what's funny is this is the latest in a long line of of a concerning trend with James Harden involving his game faltering over the course of a playoff series. I noticed this for the first time in 2018 – But, you know, I have this theory with James Harden that the repetitive nature of his game is what makes him easier to guard over time. So you'll see him be super dominant in Game 1s, and then usually over the course of the series, he kind of falls apart. That's when you get those really bad games at the end of playoff series, right? So 2018, against Minnesota, Game 1, James Harden has 44 points on 58% shooting. Rest of the series, 25 points per game on 36% shooting. Against Utah, Game 1, 41 points on 46% shooting rest of the series, 25 points per game on 39% shooting against the Warriors that year, the seven gamer 41 points on 58% shooting in game one, 27 points per game on 39% shooting the rest of the series in 2020 in the bubble against Oklahoma City 37 points on 55% shooting in game one. 29 points on 45% shooting the rest of the series. Against the Lakers, 36 on 60% shooting in Game 1. 28 on 47% shooting the rest of the series. And those aren't as inefficient as some of his others, but again, you can see the drop-off from Game 1 over the course of the series. And then this year, he hits 7 threes and scores 23 points in Game 1 against Brooklyn. Shoots 33% the rest of the series and averages 15 points. Game 1 against Boston, 45 points on 57% field goals. 14 points per game on 18% field goals in the last two games. So it you can see this consistent trend of like, first time anybody sees James Harden, they really struggle to guard him. He gets to his spots. He knocks down a bunch of step-back threes. He puts up big numbers. Over the course of the series, they start to figure it out. And again, like, Juxtapose it with Devin Booker, who is so good at varying his attack. Like, this time I'm attacking in the post. This time I'm attacking in transition. This time I'm just going to go on the catch and jab step and go to my spot and hit a three. This time I'm working in pick and roll. You know, this time I'm going to, um, you know, clear out slow down ISO and hit a hard jab step jumper going to my left, right? Like, he's going to have all these different variations of his offensive attack. And so it makes him kind of actually gain strength as the series progresses but with James Harden it's kind of the same thing every time it's I'm gonna isolate you and I'm going to kind of get that left foot forward and I'm gonna pound those between the leg dribbles until I kind of see you leaning one way and if you're leaning on my step back I'm gonna go left and drive hard to the basket if you're Uh, leaning too hard on my left hand, I'm going to do a hard left-to-right crossover and try to get back to the right. If you're playing too far off of me, I'm going to do a hard step-back dribble into that step-back jump shot going to my right. Like, he's going to do that same kind of sequence of events in every single iso, and it's almost always above the break. Then you go to the uh, pick-and-roll situation, same type of thing, there's no variation. He doesn't have a hard pull-up jump shot in pick and roll. His jump shot in uh, in the mid-range is more of a step back that he likes to take in isolation situations. So in pick and roll, it's like he's going to go all the way to the rim. And so you can kind of funnel him properly. And especially if you can send him to his right hand, he's not going to finish at the rim very well. So it just, in a single-game sample size, when people aren't familiar with it or not ready for it, he can have a lot of success. But like NBA defenders, they see that same sequence of moves Dozens and dozens of times, and by game four, they just have it figured out. And, I mean, this is the same player that Boston had no idea what to do with in game one, and now he looks, you know, incredibly ineffective as we've progressed. And we're not even – I mean, we're in game three. Series 2-1. But it is definitely a concerning trend with James Harden. I do think that is the reason why he struggled so much in the postseason. Joel Embiid, I thought he competed his ass off on both ends. He had 30 and 13. He had four blocks. Uh, but he got 10 combined made field goals from James Harden, Tyrese Maxey, and Tobias Harris. That's just not going to cut it. I mean, I've talked a lot about how that's the most talented top four in basketball, but if they're – like, we – I've talked about this a lot, but sometimes it's more simple than than any sort of schematic or any sort of complicated concept. It's like, hey, did your guys play better than they did the last game because that's going to fix a lot of your problems. Like, what did I say about the Warriors series? Inconsistency from LeBron James from LeBron James and Anthony Davis is their biggest threat. Said to Colin, I was like, if they play great consistently, they'll beat the Warriors. If they don't, they'll lose. J, uh, Anthony Davis, incredible in game one. They win. Anthony Davis, awful in game two. They lose. Steph Curry, awful in game one. They lose. Steph Curry, amazing in game two. They win. You kind of get the point here. Like, they need James Harden to play well to have any chance to beat the Celtics. It's just a fact. Now, from an adjustment standpoint, a couple things I'd like to see them do. On the Harden front, I'd like to see them run more guard-guard screens early in the possession to get a smaller defender on Harden so that he's a little bit more effective in pick and roll. Again, a big part of that's going to be pushing with pace so that you have time to run multiple actions. And it, Regardless of anything having to do with James Harden in general, getting the ball up the floor, uh, floor clicker, quicker and uh, flipping sides, I think, could help a lot because... Boston is loading up so much on the strong side that like just a skip pass could go a long way to getting the entire defense to 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 rotate. You do that once or twice, their just their shell drill just gets a little looser. Now instead of being completely loaded up on the side, they're only kind of loaded up on the side, which could go a long way towards helping that Joel Embiid high you know high post catch or elbow catch right. So I'd like to see them get the ball up the floor quicker and reverse sides of the floor a little bit more. Um, we talked about this earlier with the Embiid at the elbow stuff, but when they're doing that three-quarter front with backside help, that bracketing Embiid before the catch at the elbow, that's where you want to throw that skip pass so that Joel Embiid can reverse pivot and have a good seal at the elbow on the other side of the floor. Um, and then just in general, they need to play better defense. I didn't think their defensive effort was very sharp to start the game. They got a little bit more desperate at the end of the game, but it just was too late at that point. All right, guys, that is all I have for this morning. We will be back after Heat Knicks at about 3.30, 4 o'clock-ish Pacific time, and then we'll be going after Warriors-Lakers. The Volume.
0: Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere.